0: Would you pray with me? Father, we just uh, bless you for um, your uh, kindness to us, and we see that kindness and your love most clearly through the cross of Christ. And God, we thank you that you came to rescue us um, when we were runaways, headed in the other direction. We thank you that you um, grabbed a hold of us and brought us into your forever family, where we are fully and forever loved. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would uh, superintend over our time, God, that you would take uh, the word and that you would, uh, that it would be effective in transforming our hearts. And God, I pray that you would enable me to humbly stand behind your word, that I would not bring any offense to it, but that, God, that you would receive all the glory and honor through the proclamation of your word and that would be for the good of the saints. And God's people said, Amen. amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Anybody here that's normally in 8.30 service that just needed more sleep? There's one right there. Yeah. Me too. I don't think I was actually here in the 8.30 service. but I... um, So welcome. Um, it's good to see you all. We are, um, as Jason said when he uh, emceed, we've been uh, doing a couple of topical sermon series. We did um, the Belong series and the Parenting series. Um, we really felt the Lord was leading us to both of those series, so we're thankful we did them. But we, we don't want to get stuck there, actually. Um, kind of our, as somebody said the other day, I was having lunch with them, he says, you know, WCC's fastball, if we have a fastball, is that we teach through a book of the Bible, that we just, we, we systematically teach through a book. And that, that keeps us away from any pet agendas we might have, and uh, we, it just lets the, the Word speak. And so today we're, um, we're starting, um, it's the first of two consecutive books that we're going to be teaching through. It's the Phil series. We're going to spend the next three Sundays in Philemon. And then after Easter, we're going to do 22 weeks in Philippians. So really excited about that. Um, this, um, you know, I don't know. I'm mean, just reading through the Bible. I've probably read through Philemon, you know, a number of times. I've never taught through it. I've never like deep dove into Philemon. It is amazing. It is a pregnant book. It's got so much to offer. And I trust that God's Spirit will bring both encouragement and conviction as needed to all of our hearts through this series. I want to remind you that it's, it's three weeks through 25 verses, and we're just gonna, I'm going to kind of just set the context today. So you're going to be, my hope is that you, are, you leave here longing for more and that it drives you um, into the, this beautiful letter of Philemon over the next couple of weeks just in your personal devotion time. The master story of the Bible is the story of how God calls people out out of darkness for Himself. It's a story of how God forgave and reconciled a runaway humanity, a humanity that was going in the opposite direction. It says in Ephesians that we were dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses when by His mercy He made us alive in Christ Jesus. Much of the Bible is devoted to the big players and the, and the big stage of world history, but the letter to Philemon brings it down to, to just a very common level where I feel like it's, just, it's a personal letter to Philemon and therefore a very personal letter to you and I. This letter to Philemon shows the Christian drama of forgiveness being played out on the, um, by ordinary people who would be unknown except for the inclusion of this beautiful letter in the canon of Scripture i found, as I've, as I've been thinking about this, and um, thinking about the concept of forgiveness and reconciliation, I feel like the church, Big C Church, has really um, seized the concept of forgiveness and reconciliation through the culture more than they do through God's words. There's a lot of misunderstanding on forgiveness and reconciliation. And so we're going we're gonna to deep dive into this in the next three weeks, into the... the um, Concepts of forgiveness and reconciliation. Just a small subject. I'm sure none of you have any um, unforgiveness issues in your life. Um, you've never caused um, a problem in anybody else's life. You're, all your relationships are reconciled, right? I bet not. I bet not. Um, some questions that will be addressed in this three week sermon series are the following What is forgiveness? Sounds rhetorical, but what is forgiveness? Why is forgiveness of supreme importance, especially to Christians? When and who are we to forgive? Am I called to forgive when the offender has not asked for forgiveness? How do we forgive? Is there a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? And maybe even one more level beyond that, restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Here's a biggie that I know every one of us at some point are going to be a part of. How are we to respond when it comes to our attention that there are two believers that have unreconciled differences and we know about it? We find out about it when someone vents to us or expresses bitterness to us or complains against someone else to us. When that happens, what's our role and responsibility? We're going to talk about this over the next few weeks. God's Word is going to speak to us over the next few weeks. Let's just talk just a minute about what reconciliation and forgiveness are, just at a a very high level. First of all, reconciliation happens when forgiveness is granted and sin is confessed. Or you can reverse that. Reconciliation happens when sin is confessed and forgiveness is granted. To forgive someone is to cancel their debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Every debt has to be paid. So, forgiveness is to, forget, to forgive someone is to actually cancel their debt by paying their debt or absorbing it yourself. In all cases, when wrong is done, there is a debt that is incurred or that is built up. And there's no way to deal with a debt without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer or you forgive, which brings suffering upon yourself. Because it feels a lot easier, and it is a lot easier just to hang on to things than to actually release someone that has brought you great harm. Forgiveness is always extremely costly. It's emotionally very expensive. It takes much blood, sweat, and tears. And I know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've either forgiven or you're in the process of forgiving. Tim Keller says this. Tim Keller says when you forgive, you pay the debt yourself in several ways, in three different ways. First, you refuse to hurt the person directly. You refuse vengeance, you refuse payback, you refuse the infliction of pain on the perpetrator. That's the first way that you pay the debt yourself by forgiving the perpetrator. Second is you refuse to employ innuendo or spin or hint or gossip or direct slander to diminish those who have hurt you in the eyes of others. You see, oftentimes you can tell when there's unforgiveness when somebody comes to you and they are complaining about somebody else. Third, when forgiving, you refuse to indulge in ill will in your heart. You pay the debt yourself when you, when you refuse to indulge in ill will in your heart. You don't root for them to fail. You don't hope for their pain. It's hard, but instead you pray, and you pray positively for their growth, maybe even their salvation, their repentance. It's very typical today for non-Christians, I don't know, maybe there's uh, somebody here today that has yet to bend their knee to Jesus Christ, and it's very typical for non-Christians to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? The cross of Christ makes no sense to unregenerate humanity. Why couldn't God just forgive us? It's actually not a bad question. Why couldn't God just forgive us? No one who has been deeply wronged just forgives, and that includes God. Nobody who's been deeply wronged forgives, and includes our Creator. If someone wrongs you, there are only two options. You make them suffer for it. Or you refuse revenge and you forgive them, and you suffer for it. And you might be go, you know, you might be sitting here still, going, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Keep talking, keep talking. I feel like I'm good. I feel like I, I've forgiven everybody. I feel like I, there's no um, unrepentant sin in my heart. Um, I don't know anybody that's at odds with each other. I don't know any fractured relationships. You might be asking, well, how do I know when there's unforgiveness? How do I know when there's unreconciled relationships? Unreconciled relationships are simply and profoundly marked by avoidance, coldness, irritability. You ever felt it? Even as I was preparing this sermon, I was was thinking maybe I I was good. But as I was thinking through people in my mind that maybe I've had some issues with in the past, I'm going, you know, uh, maybe there still is some pent-up unforgiveness. I wonder if I have sinned against them that I need to make some things right. That's a healthy examination. But it's one that we all want to avoid. And furthermore, if you find yourself avoiding or being cold toward or being very irritated with somebody, then you probably have an unreconciled relationship. In its most basic and simple form, this teaching is that Christians in community are to never give up on one another. Never give up on a relationship. Never write off another believer, no matter how hard, how bad they've harmed you. We must never tire of forgiving and repenting and seeking to repair the relationships of two other believers that have fractured relationships. Matthew 5, 23 through 26 says, tells us that we should go to someone when we know that they have something against us. That's backwards. Have you ever felt that when you just know something's just different? You're being treated differently. Maybe husband, wife, maybe it was with one of your sons or daughters, maybe it was your parents, somebody else in the church, they're treating you differently. Jesus says, when you sense that, go and ask them. You've been acting differently toward me. Is there, and, and do it humbly, is there some way that I've sinned against you? Because if there is, I want to know about it so I can make it right. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 says we should approach someone we have something when we have something against them. Maybe not approach them directly, but, but before, between, like, God, why, why do I feel, why do I get a pit in my stomach when I see this person or when I talk with this person? It's probably telling you you've got some unforgiveness in your heart and ask God to give you the courage and the humility to forgive that person. In short, if any relationship has cooled off or has weakened in any way, it's always your move as a Christian. Don't wait for the other person. It's always your move. Well, they haven't asked for forgiveness. We're going to talk about this over the next three weeks. This is an impossible task this morning to, to, That's why we're going to do it in three weeks. Is because um, th- one of the one of the um, something that's being taught in the church today, and actually through Christian counseling, is that you should never forgive unless they've been, unless they've asked for your forgiveness. We're going to unpack Matthew 18 in the next couple of weeks. That is absolutely wrong that, that we forgive even when the other person hasn't forgived, forgiven or, or confessed. It doesn't matter who started it. God always holds you and I responsible to reach out to repair tattered relationships. Any Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the distance or the alienation began. And I know that I'm saying this very um, passionately, boldly, and confidently in God's Word. But I also know this. I know that there are some of you that have had deep, deep and hard, hard hurts. I know it. But I also know that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that all you've got to do is keep your eyes fixed on the cross of Christ and remember the grace that He poured out on your behalf so that you can be adopted. And that will give you the courage and the humility to forgive. But I know it's harder for some than others, but He's calling you to forgive. Let's take a quick look at these um, first seven verses. There's three main characters. Paul. Paul wrote the letter. Paul is also the facilitator of reconciliation in this um, short letter. He's a mediator, if you will. You're actually going to see that he's actually uh, like a type of Christ in this letter. You've got um, Philemon, the slave owner, who's a recipient of the letter, and you've got Anisimus, who's a runaway slave. So Paul is a prisoner, most likely in Rome. It could be in Ephesus. We think it's in Rome. And Paul is in his first imprisonment. It's not his final imprisonment where he's on death row, but he's in, he's in house arrest. He's probably chained to another prisoner um, in a house in Rome that somehow he's paying, he's actually paying the expenses. I don't know how that works where you, they put you in jail and say, now you've got to pay to keep the lights on. But that's the way it works here. And he's got people coming and going um, in and out of this house that he's in house arrest. Listen to Acts 28, 30 through 31. That describes um, Paul's situation while he is writing this letter to um, Philemon. At the same time, he's writing a letter to the the church in Colossae and the church in Ephesus. It says in Acts 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without without hindrance. You can't shut Paul up. He's a one-string guitar. All he wants to do is talk about the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put him in jail, chain him into another prisoner. That's all he wants to talk about. And there's great fruit in his ministry always. Philemon is the second um, character. Philemon was a beloved friend and a gospel co-worker of Paul. He resided in the city of Colossae. Uh, the, the, the city of Colossae was under the, uh, the, government, the uh, Roman Empire. Um, Philemon was wealthy. He was generous. He was ministry-minded. He was a slave owner like many other in the culture. And we see in verse 19, we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks, that Paul most likely led Philemon to, to, to Christ. The story behind Paul's letter to Philemon is enacted on the backdrop of slavery, the evil of slavery. There was approximately 60 million slaves in this this culture, that's what tradition tells us, in a total population of about 120 million people. One out of two people were slaves in that culture. A slave was chattel or property, if you will, that the masters literally owned their slaves like they owned any other piece of property. And many times they they treated the slaves um, worse than they treated other pieces of property. Many slaves, though, were, were brilliantly uh, brilliant and they were educated, m- more so than their masters. They could be custodians of the owner's children. They were awful, oftentimes custodians of the owner's estate, um, uh, signing on behalf of the owner uh, contracts and, and uh, conducting commerce on behalf of the owner or their master. Sleds fled frequently. They ran away frequently. Oftentimes they would run to a big city where they could find, um, where they could just blend into the metropolis and just be a part of humanity. Other times they would, they would go to the, the temple and they would, looking for asylum and to be uh, purchased by a better master. Fugitive slaves were recaptured by professional bounty hunters. When they were captured, they were beaten, they were branded, and sometimes they were even killed. So there was a great cost to running away, and there was a great cost in actually being sent, sent back. Slavery was a horrible situation then, it's a horrible situation now. uh, Slavery is alive and well um, in many countries around the world. Um, Paul, in his letters, does not directly uh, condemn slavery, which is kind of shocking when you think about it. But actually, he doesn't need to condemn slavery because the gospel takes care of slavery. When the owner of slaves comes to Christ, and when the slaves come to Christ, what they find is, is that the ground is even at the foot of the cross. As Paul said in the book of Colossians in chapter 3, verse 11, there is no Greek and no Jew, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but but Christ is all and in all. So you might say, well, since Paul didn't, um, didn't talk negatively about slavery, was he for it? Absolutely not. But belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ solves the problem of slavery. Let's look at the third character, Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave belonging to Philemon. How long he'd been a slave, we don't, how he became a slave and how, how long we don't know. Probably from a, either a political takeover or more likely he was born into slavery. The very interesting thing is that his name means profitable or useful, which leads us to judge that he had been profitable to Philemon. He was very useful to his master. So this man, Anisimus, or profitable, if you will, evidently had been very profitable to Philemon, and as a result, he may have been put in charge with a great deal of responsibility. He was probably a trusted slave, and being a trusted slave probably opened up the avenue for him to run away. It's possible that Onesimus uh, stole money. At the very least, he caused financial harm to his, to his master. So Philemon's loss was either from a loss of income as a result of Onesimus fleeing or outright stealing. Onesimus found his way to Rome where he could just blend into the culture, where his, his identity and his past life would be swallowed up in this great city. Then by God's providence, he had an encounter with Paul. In God's providence, I don't know if he knew Paul ahead of time because Paul was friends already with Philemon or if he just stumbled across Paul, but but nonetheless, by God's providence, the paths of Paul and and, and, and Onesimus crossed, and Onesimus heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and became a Christian. And he was delivered once and from all from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That Onesimus became a new creation. He was regenerated. He had God's spirit in him. And being a new creation and possessing God's spirit, Onesimus was apparently convicted by his sin and must have confided in Paul that he was, in fact, a runaway. We don't know exactly what Paul said to him. We know that Paul ascended Onesimus back to his master along with his letter. We don't know what Paul said to Onesimus, but I can just imagine that that Paul, this type A personality that is growing in the fruit of the Spirit, probably appealed to Onesimus in a very gentle and loving way and gave him the following counsel. Onesimus, I praise God for your salvation. You are now a new creation with a new master with God's Spirit living in you. You've robbed your master. You've run away from him. And under our governmental system that God put in place, you need to go back. As a Christian, you have to go back to him. But I know Philemon. In God's providence, I know your master. And I know him to be a man who loves his Savior and loves the saints. And I've got your back, Anismas. I will appeal to your master to receive you back. And not just as a slave, but this time as a brother in Christ. Ani, that's probably what he called him, you left as a runaway slave, but by God's grace you're going to return as a brother in Christ to your master. You might ask the question, at least I did, why, why would Paul risk this? Why would, why would Paul step in? And Onesimus and, um, was of great value, the, the Scripture says to Paul. He was of great profit to Paul. Why would Paul send him back to a master under a governmental system where he could be beaten, branded, and maybe killed? Huge risk to Paul. Paul was counting on Philemon to forgive Onesimus as Philemon had been forgiven by his Savior. But he was willing to take the risk and encourage Onesimus to take the risk. So here's where it intersects our lives this morning, brothers and sisters. I think if we're honest this morning that we can all identify with one of these three characters. Maybe with Paul. Paul who is the agent or the minister or the facilitator of reconciliation. That every one of us know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that are living fractured relationships. There's unrepentant sin. There's un there's a lack of forgiveness. And maybe what the Lord is calling you to do through this series is to maybe he's got his finger on your chest lovingly saying, You're my man, you're my woman. And I'm calling you and I'm empowering you to be a minister of reconciliation between these two fractured brothers and sisters that because of their um, um, lack of reconciliation, they're bringing harm to my name. So would you go bring, would you be an agent of reconciliation? Some of you might identify with Anisimus, a runaway slave who caused great harm to his master, now his brother in Christ. Maybe you've moved on, maybe you've brought great harm to other brothers and sisters in Christ, another church, another marriage, whatever it is. Maybe God is calling you to go humble yourself and confess your sin to those who you wronged. And maybe there's some of you here that are identifying with Anisimus in another way. You've yet to be regenerated. It's a fancy word for saying that you've still got an old heart You still have yet to bend your knee and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you're running. If that's you and God's tapping on your chest, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And finally, many of you I know identify with Philemon, a man who experienced great pain and hurt and embarrassment at the hands of somebody else. Many of you have been harmed deeply. You've been sinned against. And if you know Jesus Christ, you're being called to release that debt, to forgive that person that has wronged you. For me, I can identify with all three at some level, honestly. We're all people in process. None of us are perfect. We're all headed towards a direction of perfection. But I really encourage you to ask the question, God, show me who I identify with this morning and what you want me to do. Let's just dig in briefly in these uh, this, uh, verses 1 through 7, where we see that Paul was a prisoner in Rome. However, he did not consider himself a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of his circumstances or a prisoner of the religious leaders who started his legal troubles. He saw himself in prison as a result of a bold proclamation of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and he would go to prison every day of the week for that. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, in acknowledging that he is a prisoner, most of Paul's letters start out how? If you can just think about the two Colossians or two Philippians or to uh, the uh, the uh, church in Thessalonica, he usually starts out with a with a greeting of Paul the apostle. This time is different. He starts out by in those other letters by uh, establishing his apostolic authority that he's speaking for the Lord and that he's going to make some commands. This is a personal letter, and Paul starts off by saying that he is a he is a um, he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's not an, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he's not asserting that right now. He's getting ready to make an appeal to Philemon, not a command. He writes to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Athia, our sister, and Archibus, our fellow soldier in the church in our house. We don't know who Athia and Archibus are. Some say that, that the, the first one is his wife, the second one's his son. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the context. If you, if you feel compelled to like do a, like a, a three-week um, um, inductive Bible study on who these two people are, go for it and tell me what you find out. It's not important. Regardless who these folks are, Paul's letter is singularly meant for Philemon, his beloved fellow worker. It's, meant, it's a personal letter to Philemon. And then he greets this household uh, in Philemon with a typical but power-packed greeting of grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace and peace go together because only grace can produce lasting peace. Um, If you're here this morning and don't know Jesus and you're lacking that that peace, the only way to find that peace is through uh, the, the grace of God. And if you know Jesus, the only way to find lasting peace is to keep going back to the grace of God. You see, grace, what is grace? Grace is the common Greek word for greeting, and grace is the fountain in which salvation springs forth, and it's also the stream in which it continues to bring forth spiritual blessings as a result of God's unchanging love. Peace, or shalom, is the Hebrew greeting, and the flower of peace grows out of the root of grace. At the moment of our salvation, we found peace with God, we were reconciled with God, and God... And, he, and we became his sons and daughters. Paul has one purpose in this letter, and that's to appeal to Philemon to forgive and receive back Onesimus as a brother in Christ. I really saw these first seven verses as Paul kind of buttering up Philemon before he laid down the hammer on him. And it's really not the case. Um, that Paul has genuine affection for Philemon. He loves him as a brother. He loves him as a co-laborer. And Paul actually heeds um, Solomon's words in Proverbs twenty-five, eleven. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Human reconciliation runs on a loving appeal, something every Christian should master regardless of personality or position. It's a loving appeal. We don't command one another to forgive. We don't command one another to confess. We appeal to the love of Christ to one another. The more we understand the grace of God, the more that we're going to want to live in reconciled relationships with other people. Paul in verse 4 and 5 tells Philemon that every time he thinks of him, he prays and thanks the Lord for him. And he has a reason to be thankful to Philemon. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. You see, what Paul, Paul isn't affirming Philemon necessarily because he's a good guy. But in this context, he is starting his appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back, and he does it by affirming Philemon's active faith that loves Jesus and all the saints. Paul thanks God for Philemon because his faith in the Lord Jesus is being manifest by his love for God and for others, specifically the saints. An act active, of an active faith loves other people. An active faith forgives other people. An act of faith confesses sin. An act of faith will have no party in two Christians um, fighting against one another, but it will act as a, an agent of reconciliation. An act faith loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves their neighbor as himself. In the same way that peace flows from grace, our love for others flows from our, our growing knowledge of Christ's love towards us. The more we understand the love of Christ, the more we understand his saving and sustaining grace, the more compelled we will be to love others. And Paul, Paul moves from telling Philemon what he thinks, what he thanks the Lord for to a prayer of encouragement that sets up his appeal that we're going to see next week for Philemon to forgive and receive back in this month. Verse 6. Verse 4 and 5, I thank the Lord for you. Verse 6, and I continue to pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. It is, it is honestly a really difficult verse. It's a, it's a hard verse. Um, but I think when you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you break it down, it can be broke down. Um, very simply, the first thing we need to understand in this verse six is what is the fellowship of your faith? Fellowship is from the Greek word koinea. It means it means um, it means sharing or community, Christian fellowship or communion with God, or more commonly with fellow Christians. By virtue of his faith or her faith in Jesus, a Christian is brought into an undividable bond of fellowship and mutual relationship with other disciples. We talked about this in our blog series that when I put my faith in Jesus Christ and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we have the same Father and we are connected together spiritually, not physically, whether we like it or not. And this fellowship that we have with God together involves both privileges and obligations. And I'll I'll take the privileges all day long. Forgiveness, God's never-ending love for me, um, relationship with brothers and sisters that like me and I like them. But the obligation is what's hard. The obligation in community to forgive one another. The obligation in community to confess our sins to one another. The obligation in community when we see two brothers and sisters that are at odds to actually be ministers of reconciliation. Paul prays that Philemon's fellowship with other believers would become more effective. What's that mean? Effective means powerful. He's praying that your fellowship with, Paul is praying for Philemon that your fellowship with other believers would become more effective, more powerful. We're not saved by works, we all know that. We don't earn our way into heaven. But once we're saved, it is, a, it is good to work. Uh, James, James says that, that, that faith that does not work is, is dead. Fake Faith always works. Genuine faith always works itself in, out in the life of love. And here in Philemon 6, Paul prays that Philemon's faith will once again become effective in love towards its members in fellowship. You see, the more that we taste and see, the more that we experience God's grace and we see that He is good, the more that we are compelled to share our lives with the lives of other Christians, the more we know about what we possess in Christ, the more effective we will be in living out our faith, and that is in serving and praying and forgiving and confessing and reconciling. You see, Philemon's effective fellowship is rooted in a deeper knowledge of every good thing that he possesses in Jesus Christ. The word effective, as I already mentioned, means powerful. And is there a more powerful Christian witness than reconciled believers? I think not. Let me say it another way. Is, a, is there a worse witness to the unlooking world than Christians having unreconciled issues in marriages, in families, in the workplace? God forbid, in the church. That the unlooking world, those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus yet, It says that they will know that you and I are Christians by what? For our love for one another. And we might say that we love one another, but if I've sinned against you and I've not come to you to ask for forgiveness, how is that love? If you've sinned against me and I've not forgiven you, how is that love? If we know about two other Christians that have a fractured relationship and we don't intervene as ministers of reconciliation, how is that love? I love this quote from Bonhoeffer. He says, Our community with one another in Christ, the Christian fellowship, koinonia, consists solely in what Christ has done for both of us. Christian brotherhood is a spiritual and not a human reality. In this, it differs from all other communities. Paul completes his final observation of Philemon's working faith before he makes an appeal to forgive and reconcile. He says this, He says, Philemon, I'm in Rome, you're in Colossae. Tychicus and Onesimus have told me a ton about your ministry. And he says, says, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints in Colossae have been refreshed by you. To be fresh comes from the Greek military term that describes the military at rest. It means to give temporary rest or refreshment for the renewal of labor or suffering. I was just thinking about I thought about this last service, and I, and I saw it again with Chris up here, is that, that these, uh, these people, that, these dear saints from this church who are going to the Czech Republic that were there last year, that, that Sarah, you receive great comfort and joy as you see that church being the church over there. It's You receive more comfort and joy if you get to go to them. We're actually going to see at the end of this letter that Paul actually wants to be re- reunited with Philemon. But in the meantime, he, joy, he, he draws great comfort and joy with the way that Philemon is loving his brothers and sisters. And Just a quick plug for Crossway Chapel, which is a network of churches that we belong to. Over in Loveland, across the highway today, is that um, Redemption Church, three years old this summer. Um, is having their first Sunday service in a building that God providentially allowed them to, to possess. And, it just, and they, are, they are a church that is like, you know, they're, they're growing to love one another, and God's bringing in people into their midst, and people are being saved. And it just brings great joy and comfort to be able to think that they're over there worshiping God and talking about the same God and worshiping the same God and talking about the same reconciliation that we are. Let me close with this. Love refreshes tired souls, and love produces joy and comfort in those who see it operating in the church. The ultimate demonstration of love was exhibited at the cross where Jesus died to set us free from sin and death and to reconcile us to God. This is what the gospel does to a life. You see, we bear increasing fruit as we grow in our understanding of all that we possess in Christ. It's only in having a deeper understanding of our complete inability to run towards Jesus and His deep and pursuing love for us that we can forgive others and be reconciled to others. Estrangement between Christian brothers and sisters is contrary to the gospel. God himself had had effected reconciliation between himself and his runaway people in Christ, you and I. Indeed, God has not only entrusted Paul with the message of reconciliation, but every one of us. Paul, therefore, sends Anismus back to Philemon with this letter as a reminder of our ultimate reconciliation in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, thank you for the gospel, thank you for the good news that you sent Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin to become our sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. And I thank you that God, that when we um, live um, unreconciled lives with other believers, God, that you don't love us any less. But God, I do pray that for your sake, for the sake of Christ and for your glory, that we would be compelled by your love to want to live reconciled lives. As Paul says in the book of Romans, as far as it depends upon us, that we would live at peace with everyone not just to have a smooth life. In fact, it might cause a life that is actually harder when we engage in this. But for your glory and for the sake of your people. It's in Christ's powerful name we pray, amen.